What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. Gentlemen, welcome to Who Pods the Watchmen. This is not our normal intro. I don't really know what our intro is going to be. I feel like we haven't really settled on that, Clay. I like that one. Yeah? You yeah. think it should be more game show hosts like I this? I think we should settle. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting Who Pods the Watchmen. Then we have I like it. Da, 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 da. That's the prices, right? Music? Usually I say never settle. But right <laughs> now, let's settle on that. Let's settle. Okay. Uh, folks. We are back once again this week to talk about our ongoing dissection of the Watchmen Tome. My name is Grant Davis, and alongside me is... Clay LaPointe. And we are Watchmen enthusiasts, I guess you could say. Uh, I come from doing a whole lot of podcasting. I do a bunch of different shows. I have a podcast recording studio here in Austin, Texas. What's the worst show you've done? (laughs) The worst show that I've ever reviewed? Oh, man. No, no, no. Um, Real Rob was really rough? I don't even know that one. Uh, I was thinking either that or the podcast. Like, what's a failure in your life? The the show was good, but the podcast didn't work. And don't say this one. Oh, man. A podcast that didn't work. I feel like I, I take podcasts and I'll just keep running them even if they're not working. Is this one working? Tap, tap, tap. Is this right, mic on? Right. Okay. Let's move ahead. <laughs> what a way to start the show. I was trying to introduce myself as a way of allowing people to – you to introduce yourself as well. But uh, I was going to say, uh, my name is Grant Davis. I run a, a podcast studio here in Austin, Texas called Permanent Record Studios alongside my partner, Mike Moody. He and I kickstarted this podcast, but while he doesn't have time right now to go through the reviewing of the comic book itself – uh, I've brought in my friend Clay LaPointe to join us. Clay, introduce yourself. Uh, happy to be here. Um, very close to here, actually. I think maybe that's one of the reasons you chose me. <laughs> I live maybe two blocks from the recording studio. Super convenient. Exactly. Um, so that's pretty much it. I do not have a recording studio. I, I don't have a history of podcasting, if you could not tell. This is your first podcast, and no, I couldn't tell, because I think you are well articulated on certain things like this. You well, and I you and I go way back. We went to college together. You n- have moved back since becoming a lawyer here in town to um initiate a book club here and like we did a book club and I was like, "Man, you can really talk about some books yeah. better than me." You've uh this might be my longest relationship. So, uh You and me? You the, the two-week podcast we're doing. Oh, the- no. <laughs> Oh, we have to keep this going, guys, yeah. for your heart. Let's not edit this. Uh, <laughs> not a bit. No, but definitely happy to be here and happy to talk about this. Um, and I think this issue, you know, I know we might be talking about some reader. Uh, you we, know, we do have listener, some listener I guess questions. Podcast, so they're listeners, listener questions first. But I thought this was an interesting issue. So yeah, yeah, we're we're talking about chapter five for all of you who are following along, and for people who aren't, just a. Uh, how about do, – do you have a little synopsis you would give of what happens in Chapter 5 
for people. Yeah, we could do a plot summary without any analysis. Uh, and I think it's interesting to, or important to do this because chapter four was really kind of this throwback or at least reflected, you know, a lot of reflection going on with Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, know, we, bit, he's up there on Mars. Bit of a flashback episode. Yeah, it was. I mean, we didn't really see much plot development. We kind of saw why they're there, not what's going on in the moment. So we've gotten back to it now in, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, you got to forgive me here. I'm going to butcher all of the names. What's the inkblot test that people do? Rorschach. Rorschach. So this one starts off with, again, Rorschach trying to figure out who is killing all the masks. And he was doing this in issues one, two, and three. So no surprise. Now we're back to the present day. Or I guess it's 1985, 1986. He's doing it again. He shakes down an old hood who he thinks might have some information. That guy doesn't really have too much information. But we just see again that you know Rorschach is, is establishing himself again as is the de- underworld detective. He's we, the crazy Batman. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. Uh, we see more murder in New York. It almost, you know, in, in some ways it seems like it's reaching a boiling point. But at the same time, the violence is so removed, it's not that close to home. We'll see a lot of people, a lot of cops and investigators or detectives or whatever, they will notice that there's murder. They'll be on the crime scene and then they'll talk about, oh, let's go get breakfast or how's it going? Let's talk about the family. So in a way, it's at a boiling point, but I think he's just showing that, you know, it's such a commonplace occurrence now. Nobody gets too too excited about it. Um, we have the reintroduction of the comic book pirate story or pirate comic book story. The Black Freighter. The Black Freighter. And that's kind of advancing in parallel to the events of the day in the comic book, which I think is interesting. We can definitely talk about that later. Um, Dan and Lori become roommates. For those of you who are not following, they are two of the superheroes. And Lori was, uh, I guess she was... Silk Spectre, too. She, she was Dr. Manhattan's sexy little ingenue. Yeah. Could we say? <laughs> yeah, his living. Yeah, his, his honey. His child bride. Yeah, it was something doctor, weird. Dr. Manhattan's honey. Uh, Dr. Manhattan goes to Mars, so then Lori has to find a place uh, to sleep, and it's in Dan's extra bedroom. Um, you, you know the parallels here. Like, you and I used to be roommates. Right. And you know how that developed into a romance. Uh, a podcast. <laughs> a podcast. Yeah. That's what I meant. But actually, it, it is very similar because, you know, we see right after Dan invites Lori to stay that he's put firmly in the friend zone. And I would say we're we're friends. I think we're in the friend zone. <laughs> uh, someone then tries to kill the rich guy, the rich masked, retired mask crusader. Ozymandias. Veed, Vet, Vite, Vate. Vate. Adrian Vate. How do you know that? Uh, I think that's preview? how they pronounce it in the movie too. Adrian Vate. Oh, okay. Yeah, you've seen the movie. I haven't right. seen that either. So someone tries to kill him. Doesn't go well. He actually kills them in return. But the guy actually uh, – the assassin – commit suicide with a poison pill. So we know it wasn't just a random guy. There's something afoot. There's a reason Rorschach is investigating. And then followed up with that, Rorschach how, – what is it? Rorschach – say it again for me. Rorschach. Rorschach. Rorschach Rorschach or Rorschach. I think Shack, more like Love Shack. Rorschach. Yeah, Shack. Yeah. So Rorschach gets set up and arrested at the very end and that's how it ends. So we just see – you know, we don't know what's going on. There's a mystery. Someone's going after the hoods – or I'm sorry, the masks as I call them. Either way, it, it sounds like you're from the 40s. Yeah. There's masks and these hoods. Yeah, yeah. I tell you. Uh, I think his writing style is influencing me. Uh, but that's it. And so now um, we're kind of at a cliffhanger. We don't know what's going on, but we know something's happening. I think that's a pretty good uh, synopsis. This this one is called – this chapter is called Fearful Symmetry. 
And uh, there's something – well, well, yeah, I was gonna say, we can get into that. But do we have – We have listener questions. Yeah. And I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, folks, if give you guys are – Give the people what they want. Yeah. Give the people what they want. Folks, if you guys are just tuning in for the very first time, welcome to Who Pods the Watchmen. This is a companion podcast to the upcoming HBO Watchmen television show. We are now taking a journey in our eager anticipation for that show. We're taking a journey through the original comic book series and going issue by issue through the 12-part um, comic book and dissecting it, analyzing it, discussing it, and kind of – uh, you know, like helping remind ourselves about what happened in this whole story. So this is a, a fun journey for us. We appreciate you guys tagging along if you are. And since we've been doing this podcast, we've been getting listeners kind of talking to us, engaging with us on some of our social media platforms, which, by the way, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Although I, I tend to hover mostly on Instagram. I find that one just more fun and engaging. And anyway, we've been getting we got a couple of listener questions that I thought we might try to tackle before we kind of dive into the meat of this episode. Yeah, let's that do sound it. good for you. Let's go. All right, so the first one, actually this question came to us from uh Facebook. This came from Michael Cassidy, aka DJ Wheels, I believe. Oh, with a Z or an S? With a Z. There we go. So my language. That's legit. Uh, he says, what up, fellas? I was looking for a place to uh, blah, 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 blah. Let's jump ahead. He said uh, he doesn't watch a whole lot of TV, but he's a huge Damon Lindelof fan after he discovered Lost in 2012. And he also loved The Leftovers. And his question is, I know absolutely nothing about the Watchmen comics or the movie. I've been listening to your pods to get an idea of the world. And to be honest, when I first heard Watchmen was Damon's next project... I was a little bit disappointed because I'm not into the superhero genre or comics, really. And I didn't want Damon Lindelof to get hamstrung by source material again, like he did with The Leftovers. He he talks like in the first season, especially. Right. It felt like he wasn't able to blossom. Which isn't unfair. Yeah. Uh, So my question is, will The Watchmen allow Damon to do what he does best? Will he be able to shock us with mystery and plot twists? Still, will he be able to create intriguing characters a la John Locke or Kevin Garvey? Adapting and remixing Watchmen has me concerned that Damon is doing more straightforward story without much mystery or plot twists. Is my assumption correct or am I off base? Basically, is Damon capable of pulling a wheelchair reveal or a we have to go back moment in the Watchmen? I hope so because he is great at it. Thanks for any feedback. You can just resp- – um, yeah, thanks for any – Feedback, and thanks for the pod. Uh, Clay, would you like to kick off? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that you one of the reasons you invited me on here was because I am also a big Lindelof fan. Mm-hmm. Um, the Leftovers is absolutely – well, you know, you can't say is – it, is it your favorite show on television, in television history? I know you're, you're a big fan of other shows. For me, it's tough because we have so many types of genres of shows. You know, I mean, obviously, it's not a sitcom or something like that. Yeah, but, absolutely. But I mean, it's it's the leftovers really blew me away, and I think he's right. You know, I mean, season one, even though it's one of my favorite shows of all time, I think I've only seen season one maybe two times, but I've seen seasons two and three like four or five times. Right. You know, and I don't know if you feel the same way. It was just so bleak and so hard to watch and so plodding and slow. And I think it was important to build that structure and those elements, but at the same time, it's tough to watch. Yeah. I- 
Go ahead. Well, you know, going to his question, the concern about the show, first off, I think it's really important to point out that Watchmen, the television show, is what is being defined as a remix. It is taking place in the present day, and it is assuming that the events of the comic book, not the movie, the events of the comic book took place in this world. And we are jumping forward. We're fast forwarding to 2019, and the show is kicking off in this world. Those characters from that past, some might still be around. Oh, so it's a sequel. Some aren't. It is a sequel. Oh. And it is adapting a lot. It's presenting brand new characters, brand new storylines. It is not going to be a rehash of what we're going over here, but what happened in the past is relevant and informative of where things now exist in the future. And when we look at the trailers, we're seeing that whereas the comic book here is tackling a lot of issues of of social anxiety with the impending nuclear war of the 80s and the, the Cold War, just the distrust, as well as dealing with how, how one copes with masked superheroes and masked vigilantes, um, the modern day looks like it's going to be tackling a lot of distrust in law enforcement and power structures as well. And like the, the police are now wearing masks just like the vigilantes were. And where, how, where do you draw the line? Where's the accountability? There's obviously a cult that has risen up uh, as acolytes of Rorschach and his, his diary and so this has – like I'm saying all this right now and I'm looking across at Clay and Clay has not watched the trailer at all. So this is all probably pretty new what I'm saying to you right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to say this without spoiling anything, just saying like this is a completely different world. I can be it's, a sacrificial lamb. You can spoil. It's, I'll forget it. It's not uh, – this allows a completely open playground with – with a good blueprint of what the world was established as previously. And that's kind of what's great about this. This is exactly what is in line with what Lindelof was able to do with seasons two and three of The Leftovers. What he was able to do once he kind of broke off from J.J. Abrams' shadow in the initial pitch of Lost and went, oh, wait, I can just like really dive into the mythology and I can go on these mysterious tangents. That's his bread and butter and i think he's going to do perfectly with this and i could not agree more and you know to speak to michael cassidy directly is that the is that is yeah. that it michael cassidy you know you're right that the wheelchair moments had this aha and this novelty to them especially back then back then i think it blew us away you know once you get into the leftover seasons 2 and 3 it's just so beautiful and the writing is so moving and it just reminds you of what it's like to be a human being even though situ- you know, circumstances are different. These people are going through the same exact things and I think that he's going to do such a great job at this source of material too because I think it is rich with fodder about what you're talking about, social anxieties and – um, you know, I don't know necessarily a police state but there's definitely you know, power structures and Crisis like that. of trust, crisis of faith. I mean Precisely. Lindelof loves delving into uh, faith and right now – in this modern time, we are dealing with a world that has used has taken Doctor Manhattan as its new surrogate god. And what do you what do you do with people that have now turned their their faith and their belief to a worship 
of an unfeeling entity that's off on Mars, right? Like, what do you do with that? Your and, salvation is a hollow icon. Right. My and, goodness. And, th- like, they don't care about you, but in a way, they're a little bit more real. <laughs> like, you have a modern history of that existence that you can draw from. So it's like, yeah, this person is there, but – and they could change the world if they had the will to, but do they care? And that's yeah. what was so beautiful about Chapter 4 that we just read. Yeah, and, and you know, and j- just really quickly on, on, on Lindelof's position here, you know, I think – and I, I think he's – this isn't a secret. You know, I think with the leftovers, he realized, hey, everybody came after me and it was pretty tough after loss because, you know, no one was happy with me. I actually was pretty happy. I mean I think I came, back from, I came back from the Peace Corps and I didn't have internet yet at my place and I wanted to stream the last episode. And I went to a coffee shop with an old laptop and I actually watched the last episode that way. And I remember I was just tearing up and crying in this coffee shop in uh, in Hyde Park in Austin because it was it was so moving. So – um, you know, I really appreciated that the whole series, and I liked the, the last season too. But I would say that I think you know he took a lot of flack for that. He did some soul searching, and then he realized, you know, with Lost, I was trying to you know resolve plot points and explore plot points, and with the leftovers, I wanted to. I didn't care what actually happened. I wanted to see how people reacted with what happened. Right. And that's what he did. And there's so much more richness and detail in that. And why can't he do it here? And it's going to be awesome. And and if people really need me to resolve all these plot points. Why? How about I just make a theme song in the leftovers? That's just let the mystery be. Exactly. <laughs> that was such a a an ode to the fans that want something more. Calm the fuck down. It's okay. Just let the mystery be. It, from from the get go, he was letting us know that. So anyway, yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think we'll see, and that's why that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, we got another question from Derek Dombrowski. This is over on Instagram, and if you guys follow us there, I might put up some question posts on our story eventually, or every so often when we do posts. Did he slide into your DMs, or was it more of a public comment? What kind of uh, what kind of guy is he? It is a direct message okay. because I I put that on the forum so people could ask just directly to us. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, um, so it says, what got you into The Watchmen? Um, for me, uh, in college, I was just recommended this as like, oh, if you're reading comics now? Because I, I hadn't read comics really when I was younger. I don't think I really got into it until college. Age of Apocalypse? When we were 10 years old? No. Wow. No, dude. Like, I watched Spider-Man, the animated series, and I watched X-Men, the animated series. And that was my wealth of knowledge of the Marvel Universe. And I watched uh, Batman series, so like I watched TV a bunch, but I didn't read comics because I was illiterate. You know this, right? Right. <laughs> but uh, I ended up uh, reading it in in college once someone was like, "You have to read The Watchmen," and I read this, and I'm like, "I'm too dumb for this. <laughs> what's going on? This is like there's a lot of complexity to what's going on here. This isn't like." My usual comics where people are just punching people in the face. Well, I think you sell yourself short, but I do think it's funny. You know, you you raise um, your unfortunate illiteracy, and I think that one of your favorite <laughs> comics that we actually talked about last week or the week before is the Powers issue, where it's just kind of the silhouette, the against the day contra jour kind of art art style where. They start off as cavemen or something, you know, and, right. and I don't think there's any words in that whole comic, or maybe there's a couple. So uh, that, that's that. that whole. That was like a one of the later issues. Um, yeah, that's true of the the power series. But yeah, it's like this one lead character, Christian Walker. He was initially this caveman who just 
is immortal and lived throughout time and you watch his whole like crazy fucked up timeline and it's all without words. It's really powerful. And the you bringing that up is really interesting because the um, that the very first comic of Powers, this was done by Brian, Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Oming. Right. The very first uh, uh, series is called Who Killed Retro Girl? And right. that yeah, title, yeah. Uh, the Watchmen was initially going to be called Who Killed the Comedian? And I think that they borrowed a lot of the idea for what Powers is from the Watchmen. It was extremely influential on that one. And it, like I, I was looking at the trailer and the trailer for the upcoming TV show Watchmen. And one of our lead characters, Don Johnson, he is playing the – his name is Judge. But he's playing the, the head um, – Commissioner, Judge. police commissioner of the police in the Tulsa PD. This all takes place in Tulsa, by the way, hmm. Oklahoma. And I was thinking about like, what if he has superpowers as well? Wouldn't he be a lot like Christian Walker, who was a guy who has superpowers, but he forgoes his super abilities to just be a – He was a big a, dude. To be a police detective. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Him and Dina Pilgrim. Yeah. Wow. I remember those you names. A, I was going to say, you have a great memory for this. Jesus. But I think it was just Christo. like they have some really good iconic names in that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, so for me, The Watchmen, it was one of those. I think when we, I think Grant and I started reading comics again at about the same age. And, you know, everybody said you need to read Red Sun. You have to read Eisner. You need to read, I think, like blankets and stuff like that. And yeah. then The Watchmen was one of those. And I think we talked about it last week. I don't really remember reading this. When I see the art style, it clicks. I remember vague things about it. I remember these waves of plot points and plot development. But, And I think I, I've tried to watch it a few times on a plane falling asleep, you know, the movie. So uh, I don't really remember what got me into it. And I think also I've told you know I think I mentioned this last week. I'm not really a big fan of the '80s art style anyway. So I a lot of the Batman type stuff is lost on me, and I know that's unfortunate. But we don't choose uh, we don't choose who we are, you know. You know, uh, let's lead this into our last question here. This comes from Swole Sauce Incorporated. Swole Sauce Inc. He slid into your DMs for sure. <laughs> says, do you think Watchmen influenced other mediums of entertainment outside of comics? And I think, um, like, inevitably, like, of course it did, but its first primarily primary influence was comics in that, like, it, it began to reshape a lot of um, – it, it, in a way, satirized and mocked a lot of how people were dealing with um, a lot of these comic characters. And even when they were trying to be edgy and dark, they were dark in a over-the-top sensationalistic way. Where Alan Moore really kind of went, no, there's there, there's some more subtle and like menacing aspect to if we had unchecked powers of, of superheroes and how easy that is to exploit and people to you know claim they are doing the the good will of the people, but like who's to who's to keep them in check? Who's to watch the Watchmen? And I I mean I want to say that. That kind of darker take on the accountability of superheroes did kind of bleed into other aspects of culture and and television and film. But like trying to think of like specific examples, I don't know. I'm a little bit hard pressed. Yeah, I'm trying to think. You know, for Swole Dog Incorporated or 
whatever his name was. <laughs> yeah. Swole mates. Swole sauce. Swole sauce. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. With swole sauce, you know, you're the art guy. Did you see any print stuff from – I mean, is this emblematic or typical of the mid-80s, mid to late 80s or is it an outlier? Like I actually don't know. Um, the splashy uh, colors, the, the, the art style. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, this, this feels – Let's get rid of the themes because the themes obviously are. I mean, New New York was filthy back then, right? And that's why like Gotham City really took you know was a big deal and all that in the '80s. I mean, big city people were afraid of them. White flight, everything like that. The crack epidemic that was a big deal. Uh, So let's get rid of the themes. And I'm sorry I cut you off, but just thinking, just looking at the art, the art feels of the '80s to me, but it also feels really a little bit more pop iconic than. Some of the grungier, quicker, uh, almost like lazy, like put it out there um, styles. I mean, when I think of like early '90s stuff, I think of like Jim Lee coming in with like his really complex and like um, distinct style that has a clear Asian influence in like what he was doing. But up until that point in the '80s comics, I. There are some fantastic artists still out there, but I, I just I'm I'm always impressed with how clean and like I said, I, iconic this stuff seems. Yeah, I really think it's beautiful, and I think you can you can just think that this this comic book is an institution. So really, whenever something's like an institution, you just kind of read it for class rather than read it for pleasure. Right. But really, when you look at the individual frames here, I mean they're gorgeous. Just the shadowing and the shading is awesome. Yeah. And the work that uh, the color artist uh, Higgins does is just fantastic here. Um, Another name. There you go. uh, Okay. Well, we've answered some listener questions. I feel like maybe I should have done a little bit more homework on the larger influence of Watchmen and other aspects of our culture. I don't know on that one. Swole sauce. I mean, swole sauce, we have 12 issues. We won't let you down, baby. (laughs) But I I do want to go ahead and dive into discussing – the issue itself, this one is called Fearful Symmetry. And I guess we should start with first impressions. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah. You know, for me, I had I had two or three first impressions. The, the, the first one is, is evident from the get-go. And I don't know if people are following along. I, that would be awesome. But I know that's likely not the case sometimes with podcasts. But just the lights and, and the switching back and forth from red to blue to red to blue or 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 actually just kind of light on, light off, which for me was uh, was was pretty awesome. And it actually, you know, it, it goes along with the title, Fearful Symmetry. And you can just really get the sense that New York is this living, breathing animal. And I think that's mentioned in the, in the comic book. And I think it's maybe just coming from that red light is coming from the flashing of a neon like Chinese food or Indian food restaurant or something. So it's get, called Rum Runner. Yeah, okay. So that's what it is with that double R. I don't know what that's supposed to be. Like yeah. Like a liquor shop maybe? Okay, maybe that's what it was. Yeah, so actually, but Rum Runners were pirates as well, so there's a little right. bit of a pirate theme. And Good as job. we've discussed before, pirates were the superheroes of this era because since real superheroes exist, all the comics were based more on pirates. That was their like pop culture of the time. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that I thought that was an Indian food restaurant. That's my favorite food, 
And so I think just by default, if I don't know what something is, I just hope it's an Indian food restaurant. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah, I mean, it was beautiful. And it kind of reminded me just the first couple of pages, I thought of that kind of temporal resonance, almost like a clock ticking. And it brought me back to like Kill Bill 1 at the end, that fight scene right. where you have that like water metronomy kind of thing when she's fighting outside. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And right there when they're waiting and you know that something's about to happen and the moment is pregnant with anticipation and this like upcoming violence uh, and you're just seeing how long each second lasts. You know, I think there was a question on Reddit, on Ask Reddit this week and, you know, I mean, how cliche for podcasters to talk about Reddit. But somebody (laughs) said like, what's the longest five minutes of your life? And, you know, when you watch Kill Bill, those 10 seconds seem like an eternity because, you know – Holy shit. Like somebody's going to die at the end of this and somebody's going to have to – they're going to be – that's almost artistry the way that they're like swinging their blades and stuff, you know. And here this was the same thing. Like you really think tick-tock, 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 tick-tock for the nine panels and then of course we think of the page before that, the cover, the Watchmen with the clock ticking towards midnight where, you know, the nuclear bomb is going to go off or whatever. So it really kind of sets that that tone right from the get-go, that thematic element that, hey – we're moving towards something, which I thought was cool, especially because chapter four was really just this kind of reflection, like throwback episode or issue. And now chapter five, we're moving forward again. He's letting us know that. And it's also pretty brilliant in how it reflects what was happening in the very first chapter when we're seeing the detectives in present time investigating the murder of the comedian. And in in between the the toggling of panels – was showing uh, them in cool colors and everything with the comedian went during his murder in a like bathed in a red palette. So like this has already been established as as a way to kind of toggle frames between two storylines, but now it's used as a a metronome, I guess, if you will, like you were saying, to to show the current flow of natural time going on in the panels here, but it, it's all played off of the blinking on and off of a neon light in in the scenery. And I think that's just a really smart decision, especially also following up on an entire chapter of chapter four, which was all about a, a displacement of time and irregular or a um, an untethering from time of Dr. Manhattan, right? So – yeah, like so, here it's like no, hey, we're back in a new chapter, we're back on track. Everything is happening happening in a nice, smooth, orderly, linear fashion. And so now obviously again we're marching towards something, but what do you think we're marching to? Well, I mean, in the in this in, particular in no spoilers because I'm I'm reading this in real time. What oh. what would you think? Have you read ahead? I know what happens. For just from the movies or just from Wikipedia or from, what? From the comic and I know what happens in the movie. I've, I know this story and I know what we're marching toward. Were, I, if, I know the impending – If you were moi, Clay LaPointe, not a podcaster, mm-hmm. just a man in South Austin with five chickens. <laughs> you do have five chickens. What, what would you think? Where are we going with this? Um, I mean I would – you know the end of this chapter, so you know where this kind of spells a certain doom for Rorschach. What I think is interesting about this chapter five, it's called Fearful Symmetry, and this is the chapter that a lot of uh, people rave about for – I don't know if you noticed this. 
the precise symmetry of the panels of this entire chapter. How it is outlaid in the beginning is exactly mimicked in how it's laid out in the end, which is not just to say that it is um, the number of panels. It's nine panels in the beginning, nine panels at the end. And then if there's ever a blowout panel with like um, three panels combined into one at the top of like page three, you're going to find that like three vape. pages from the end as well. Or like the, the, the Vate the scene. And Vate is on, dead uh, center. 14, and 15. When, when you see him swing this gold statue thing to, to club this guy to stop him from the assassination attempt, that is a dead center. And you can look at how all the panels mimic each other. And it's all about Vate. It's the detectives you'll notice when they pop up on one page, they pop up halfway through, flipped on the other side. All of this entire chapter that's about Rorschach's investigation is a Rorschach mirrored panel construction as well. And how meticulous that is and how how much work that must have been in order to create this, that is such a testament to – the well, think of like a the haiku. nature of like working together, the collaborative nature of of Gibbons and and more, and I'm just I'm blown away by it. Well, that too, and just think of a haiku, right? You set the structure, and then you place art within that structure, and yeah. with that tension, with those limitations, you might be able to squeeze something extra out that that uh, you wouldn't have had otherwise. So, you know, I, I think I had other things to talk about, definitely, but you just kind of made me think about something when you mentioned, you know. Uh, you know how it, this one ends, at least, because I haven't read ahead. So when this one ends and you see Rorschach uh, on the ground getting arrested and you know that he's going to go to jail, or at least that's, the, that's where he's headed, mm-hmm. do you kind of have an oh shit moment? Like this dude might have been better on the streets doing his investigations or – you know, like what, what, was, your, what was your impression? Um, man, me, I kind of thought it's, he's, he's better outside. It's hard for me to divorce myself from where I know this story goes. And just try and, like, take this one as is. Like, I like that the beginning of this shows a a confident, like, he's like Omar from The Wire. He's king shit of fuck mountain, right? He's walking down the street and everyone's hiding and he is a man in control. And what we see is the mirror reflection of that, the opposite at the end. When he's a guy who's been set up and he no longer is in control and he has his fall from grace. So I like that he's a, he's a man on top. He goes, waltzes in, kicks in doors, takes charge of situations, shakes down the Moloch, Moloch or whatever his name is, yeah. and gets his in, intel that he wants. And then moseys about and does his little journal entries and whatnot. And then on the flip side, everything falls apart. And now – He's a guy that's been captured and it's the big reveal of he's the guy who's been carrying around the sign. He's the guy who had the end is nigh. So we've seen him lurking about through this entire comic series and he's been right under our nose. And I think there's something really telling about that as well. Like as far as the big reveal, I remember that from when I first read it the first time I went, oh, it's that guy. But I'm sure you remembered at this point that that detail, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I'm sorry. I was just thinking, no, you're you're completely right. And I think that, you know, I guess I'm just kind of thinking, we know it's marching ahead. 
who's doing it. And I used to not really care about the plot so much because I thought this was this comic book was such like an institution, like I said, and we really kind of appreciate it. And now I'm actually kind of with this issue, I'm kind of sucked into the plot. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And this is the first time. And it took what? What is this? Chapter five? Mm-hmm. It took five issues for this. And so while you were talking, I was kind of flipping back through some of those. And I got to on page 18 of the comic, if anybody's following along, top left panel. It, it, it's, it's, the, it's the note that set him up. And it says, call tonight, 11.30 p.m., have information, urgent Jacoby or mm-hmm. something, right? And so if I'm looking at that, I'm not a handwriting expert. What, what, what's a handwriting expert called, like in the, uh, the police department? A letterographerist. Right. That, sound, that sounds good. Yeah, I think it's you a know, <laughs> That's it. If you just take a quick peek at this, is this a woman's handwriting? Can a man – I mean I'm generalizing here. I'm sorry. I'm going back to the 80s because you know that's what we're reading about. So I'm generalizing like crazy. Or is Could, it a shaky um, guy with with uh, cancer? A uh, shaky – Somebody with glaucoma. Hand. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I agree there. This is a setup and if you look at the handwriting, it doesn't seem like the handwriting of Moloch per- necessarily. Not at all. Not at all. Anyway, I'm just kind of – I'm playing with a limited hand here, you know, if we're playing poker. But I'm just wondering who could that be? It's not a man's handwriting. I mean we got a couple notes here. We got the note of of Rorschach writing to Moloch too when he writes behind you with a little note in the fridge. And that's a – That's a pretty crazy note. Yeah. Behind you and he his, his little moniker is a little Rorschach symbol. It's pretty adorable. Yeah. He, he's really thought out his whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So let me let, let me ask you this. What do you think? Because now we return to – I'm dancing around stuff I want to say about like what happened. No, I know. And I feel like that's kind of been the whole – I mean, again, you can do that. I Like I said, I can be the sacrificial lamb because I will forget within a week. Mm, I don't know. So I, I feel like what I'm going to have to do here in a couple minutes is have you step outside the room because I'm going to talk about some stuff yeah. that definitely happened. Just let it out. <laughs> Just let it out. No, you know, I think it, it takes away from Sometimes you. Diana and I are watching a movie and we'll get 20 or 30 minutes in and then we'll realize, oh, we, we saw this maybe two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't even years ago. We saw this two or three weeks ago, and we're like, well, should we change it? No, nah, we'll just see what happens because we've seen the whole movie, but we've forgotten. So what did you think about the return of kind of the gumshoe detective narrative? I mean, to me, it seems like it could be from the 1950s. And the writing style, I agree. I, I, I think it's good. I think you were talking about earlier about the writing and the structure of the book. I think it's good, but it's totally placed in, in that 1940s, 1950s Dick Tracy thing. Like when we have the detectives saying – I mean, he's a man out of time, obviously, in more ways than one, that he he acts like this old school kind of detective. And I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, but, no. But also in a way that like he's still the, the lone wolf that's still operating outside the bounds of – Rorschach. Of, yeah, Rorschach. No, no, you're, you're right about Rorschach for sure. But I'm talking about the detectives. Like if you're on page seven, they say, oh, that, boy, what did he use on these? Kitchen knife. Their names were Claire and Dominique. Nice names, sort of film star names. Yeah. So you want to get some breakfast? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just from like, I mean, that's, that's, that's not even Hemingway, that type of minimalism. That's insane. So do you, whenever you're reading that, are you thinking, ah, a little hokey? Or do you just think, ah, they're, they're, you know, I'm just kind of thinking the way he structures these characters. Because later on, he's that, they're talking in the police department precinct or whatever. 
and he won't pick up the phone. He does this, They do the same kind of like who's on first, who's on second thing. Right. Know? I find that I don't have much emotional investment in the detective characters themselves. They seem just a a lens for us to get a glimpse of how society is coping in this world. But all, your, all your emotions are going to Dan because he's been friend-zoned with Lori. poor Dan. I mean, he can't compete with Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> poor Jesus Christ. Boring-ass Dan. We've all been Personality-less Dan. The only time he has personality is when he puts on a costume. Yeah. No, no. I, I, so I'm sorry to interrupt. But yes, yeah, so you were saying like you don't really so, – so do you think they're just kind of plot devices? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I, I mean we don't know their names and I don't know if we're ever going to learn their names. I think, yeah, they, they're just there to kind of fill us in on what's going on with the, the cultural landscape at the moment. Yeah, so, so with Dan and Lori, uh, pages 10, it kind of goes from there. What did you think about that scene? To me, I, I've never actually, you know, I've read a lot of comics. I think you've been to my house. You've seen the comics on my shelf. I've been to yours. You have even more than me. I've never seen a scene like that where it's like the images are echoed. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Because it's a mirror reflection that we're seeing at first. Exactly. But and that, it's, it's so it's so disconcerting. It's it fits with the whole Rorschach thing of we're seeing things mirrored already, and to introduce a like seeing characters talking, they're a little bit darker and shaded because we're actually looking at them in a mirror reflection. It's it's fascinating to me because I I read this and I'm like. Oh, it seems like these two characters should be talking, but the word bubbles are coming from behind them. And it took me for a second to realize, oh, that's because we're seeing their mirror reflections. It took me like a hundred seconds. And I'm like, that's that's really smart in a way because, yeah, thematically for the structure of the comic, for what they're going for there. But also these are characters that li- lead double lives. And so there's a part of them that's saying something and a part of them that isn't that same person, right? Like part of them is Dan Dryberg and part of him is Night Owl. And the idea that they're they're speaking to each other and there's this this separate world, this separate mirror version of them that is the same people we saw in the alleyway who got in a fight with all those thugs and they were exhilarated by that. That still exists within them, but it seems like sheltered and like cordoned off from them. They're they're not their whole selves. Yeah, so so two things about that. You know, the first one, and maybe you spoke about this in the first few podcasts uh, um, that I wasn't a part of, but talking about them getting into the scuffle in the alleyway, do we know if any of these people other than Dr. Manhattan actually have powers or are they just these Sylvester Stallone brawlers? I would say no one necessarily has powers. The only one who seems closest is Ozymandias being a super intellect. But he's just a market. He just makes toys. Oh, is that all he does? Oh, wait. Does he have something else going on that I didn't pay attention to? He's super smart. Is he? Yeah. The, the, we're talking about the rich dude, Veet or whatever. Veet, yeah. Oh, he's smart? Oh, man. There are oh, things I, I, I want to say to oh, you. I, I thought he, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Coming. I thought he had business acumen. Yeah, okay. he, he's super smart. He's like, I mean, he's like Lex Luthor. Really? Okay. Yeah. How's, okay. how's that for a spoiler? <laughs> I mean, you know I'm a Marvel guy, so that really doesn't tell me that much. Okay. Sorry. He's just know? a smart dude. I'm a jerk. But, yeah. uh, okay. And then, you know, the other thing is just looking at this scene again you talked about not caring about the detectives we don't know their names who mm. do who do you care about because now we're five issues in so we're on the wagon you know what i mean like we're on this path with it we're not going to jump off so who do you who who do you care about i care about i care about the superheroes as an institution i think 
I I care about like how they are coping and operating within this world structure. On an individual basis, I think there is still something admirable about Laurie and Dan as kind of the the everyman characters. And I think there's still a noble self-righteousness to Rorschach despite his fascist tendencies and his Looney Tunes, other shit going on. Um, So I would say those driving factors are still – something I'm clinging to, as well as just the plight of humanity itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, talking about Dan and Laurie and Rorschach trying to do the right thing and do extra, I do think there's this, like, there's this evergreen affinity for people who are trying to do more and also live normal lives. We see Dan and, he, you know, he says, hey, if you need anything, I'll be just down the hall. You know, yeah, and yeah. then he kind of gets scared about saying that. And he says, you know, in case you need like an aspirin or something like, you know, I don't know why people need aspirin in the middle of the night, but whatever. You know, and I they, didn't mean dick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then so then uh, or he's a he's a respectful guy. Maybe he meant like a foot massage or something. Yeah. Some, right, some right. Epsom salts. Right. But then you see him in that in the bottom right panel of 19 just sleeping alone and he's still sleeping on one side, which if you're a single dude and you're sleeping on one side of the bed, you're obviously pining for somebody. You know, again, I think earlier I was a handwriting expert. Now I'm a body language expert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just a really sad scene. And I think for me, like, it's hard enough for me every week to take the trash and recycling out on Monday nights. These people are doing so much more. They're trying to have these – it's kind of the Spider-Man thing. You know what I mean? So I think there is this affinity we have for these people. And so that's what I care about. I care about Dan and Lori and I care about Rorschach a little bit. You know, you might say he's misguided and he has these – Weird tendencies. He's obviously he could use some more friends and get out of the house a little bit more. That's he's in a very he's a very abused person who's now abusive. It's a cycle. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. But I mean, still he's still trying to figure out what's going on with the people around him that he cares for and that he had some community with. So you know, those are the people for me that I care about. And I mean, but do like do you care about the kid? And I, we haven't even talked about this, which I'd love to talk about with the whole comic book element, the pirate story. But do you even care about the kid and the and the newspaper vendor, or is he again just like the detective, just like a plot point to talk about the crazy anxiety with war and impending doom? Uh, plot point. I, I think that they are vehicles, like you're saying, for for telling us. For illuminating the world and, and drawing thematic uh, parallels, which is what the Black Freighter is doing a plenty of. And man, I want to talk to you about what happened with that in a minute. Um, yeah. But yeah, sure. I, I agree. Like those characters, eh, I mean, I, I don't know their names. I find the, the stodgy old newsman actually a little bit unbearable. Um, if I ever had to talk to that guy in real life, I'd be like, shut the fuck up, you idiot. <laughs> Well, it depends if it's a work day or a weekend because weekend you might have more time. You could kind of get into it with them. But yeah, like if you got to go, you got to go. Yeah. Just seems like a guy who likes to moan to himself to hear himself talk. But he also believes it because remember on that issue three, he gave he gave that dude his shoes and hat and stuff like that. He thought that was a heartwarming moment. And then he like fell back into the same pattern of like, I see the news. I know everything. He's crazier than Rorschach. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I I mean, I, I feel like. You say you know these things, but there's this is this is humanity in a nutshell. But there's just this paralysis to do anything about it. Well, and also he's big fish, small pond. He sits there at his newspaper, you know, shack. Whatever. Right, right. But what's he do? It's his fiefdom. Yeah, 
Yeah, so let, I, I definitely do want to talk about the comic book thing, and I don't know if you spoke about it. I'm, I'm sure you did because it's so interesting in the first few issues. Mm. You know, kind of give me a quick – if you well, could. Before we get into that, yeah. let's talk about the Adrian Vate scene. Please. Because he is – he's walking down the hall. He's talking with his, his secretary who says like, hey, we have a meeting for some merchandise stuff. And – uh, they, the the toy people want to make some models of your villains. And then suddenly an assassination attempt happens. He moves out of the way. His secretary gets shot and he, he beats this guy down. <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot um, that his secretary got shot. Yeah, she gets Jesus shot. Jesus Christ. What a day. He beats this, this dude down, smashes his head and he's bleeding. And then he reaches in his mouth to try and stop a cyanide tablet. What did you uh, what did you think of this whole sequence? Yeah, for me, I mean, it didn't strike. I mean, obviously, there was some violence, there was some action, which I think this scene needed a little bit. Well, or, this or, is I, exactly I, at the halfway point, and this is where the tilt happens, I guess, for this this issue. Is that a technical term? Well, the the kind of the big the the move to um, things no longer being what they seem, in a way. Interesting. Um, okay. Not only in it being um, a halfway point for that, but it's like. It seems like not a whole lot of actions necessarily happening, and then suddenly things kind of take it up a notch after the halfway point. So, and you just said the tilt. It made me think. Yesterday, I was talking with Diana about jumping the shark, and I mentioned it. She said, "What does that mean?" And oh. I said, "I think it's from an episode of Happy Days. You are whenever correct. there was like, let's just say season seven or eight. I'm get, I'm making it up. Just you know, things are running. They're they're running aground. There's nothing more to do. They're they're just treading the same water and over and over. And they decide, let's get them water skiing, and then we'll jump over a shark because you know we're maybe a shark's chasing us. They're trying to get away from it, and they jump over the shark. They literally jump over a shark and, as a, a a gimmick because they don't have any other interesting plot. Points. And Diana said it doesn't seem like. They would jump over a shark in Happy Days. I said, <laughs> "Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of the point." So, it, do you remember yeah, in Arrested sorry, Development, so, so they, the t- they no. have him, they have uh, Henry Winkler literally jump over a dead shark on a dock as an homage to that. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember that. It's pretty great. Anyway, yeah. So, so Michael Cassidy, really quickly, I don't think Lindelof will be jumping any sharks. You know, we just talked about caring about certain characters, and he did such a good job with that in Leftovers. Because toward, at least for me, towards the end. And I'm sorry to go back to this, but towards the end, I didn't care what happened to the 2%. I cared about what happened to the characters there and what they were going to do with it moving forward. And that was the most beautiful thing. We need to know the relationship of Nora and, and Kevin and Jesus, look at – I mean, you know, the, the close-up shots of her at the end, it was so beautiful. And so uh, anyway, I think who cares about the plot development? I think that's important. And now that Grant has informed me that it's a whole new show – I don't really think he's hemmed in by anything. I mean, he can do what he wants, and it seems like he's he's with HBO. I'm sure they've given him the green light. Yeah, and what, from what we've seen, we will see some of the other characters in there, like some of these OG characters, which is going to be fascinating. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. No, but you know, to go back to your original question, I'm sorry for for moving away from that. You know, this one. I mean, I guess I just kind of thought, whoa, he still got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty pedestrian take. But I mean, I thought, whoa, he can fight. You know. That is what I'm kind of curious about because I do feel like at a certain point for us to have this kind of discussion of a a retread of this comic, I need to start telling you about some things that happen in the future. And one of those is that Ozymandias is a brilliant – or Adrian Vate, he's a brilliant mind and a brilliant architect. And he uh, is a – 
humanitarian, a charitable man, as the news vendor says. And for all intents and purposes, as far as we can tell, he is a great dude. Like he he's a solid hero who has lofty aspirations. He knew he could he was prescient enough to see the writing on the wall of the Keen Act and was able to go, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and step away from the hero gig, come out into the public and announce that and then I'm gonna move into the business world, right? Um what is interesting is the Black Freighter has a lot of parallels to one, once you've read through this comic and you see what happens with Adrian Vate uh, uh, being uh, a bit of a mastermind, um, you see the parallels of what's going on with the, our main character from the Black Freighter, where he is a man who is trapped on the beach. He is a man who sees the end of his world in the horizon. He sees the end of his his island, as he says, uh, where his his family is, which if we take that for meaning the end of the world, he's like, I have I have my my code, my convictions, but I'm going to have to compromise on some of those and do things that I never thought I would in order to try and save my family, in order to try and save my loved ones. And this very much parallels the story of Adrian Vate, a.k.a. Ozymandias, which I found the foreshadowing here is more profound, more brilliant upon reread, and it's just so enriching because he goes and he digs up the dead bodies. He He's eating gulls and stabbing sharks and... He's doing these kind of brutal things in a way, losing a degree of his humanity because he's a bit of a sacrificial lamb, just like you, Clay, are, as I tell you and ruin some of this story for you. Um, He's a sacrificial lamb for what he ultimately sees as the greater good that he needs to achieve. Yeah, and that's wild that you said all that because on my legal pad here, I have comic book, colon, Greater point to be made by using death to reclaim or at least return to humanity. Yet as you go down that road, you lose even more of your humanity? Or is it just a great story of a dude trying to survive? (laughs) Semicolon, cool art, like Prince Valiant. (laughs) It does very much seem like that. Um, And you're you're right, though. You're you're dead on 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 the first point. It's exactly intended – like – the Black Freighter was used earlier um, as a means of paralleling what's going on with other characters, especially with like Dr. Manhattan, it seemed, in that er- those earlier issues where um, he's a man who no longer has a home. He feels lost from the rest of society. He looks at his dead friends and or these other people's friends. bodies and he no longer recognizes them. And I'm like, okay, so at that point, he was a surrogate for what's going on in Dr. Manhattan's tale. But here, unbeknownst to you and any fresh readers, um, this he is a surrogate for uh, Ozymandias' tale. And that's where going through a reread makes this so much more enriching. Yeah, I, and I, I thought this was so wild because – do you remember in Cavalier and Clay – where I the, never finished it. What? I know. I'm you know so what's sorry. funny? The first time I got the book, uh, it was at Half Price Books, and I guess somebody offloaded all these 
defective copies. Because I had they one were, of those. Yeah, those the, the, the pages were, it was, it was almost like a choose-your-own-adventure or something. And by the way, I'll just say this quickly. I, I, we might be going on long, but I remember in third grade, I, I saved up my money. Do you remember the like the Scholastic Book Fair? Hell yeah! Oh man, that was like the best. That was that was the best week in school. It might have only been like two or three days. That was mm-hmm. awesome. So I saved up my my money from doing chores at the house and stuff, and I found a Super Mario Brothers Choose Your Own Adventure. I mean, it was super sweet. Best of both worlds, you know. Yeah. So I go home and I read it. Uh, you know, third grade, but I'm reading it maybe a fourth grade level. <laughs> <laughs> You're a boss I'm re- back I'm then, I'm reading man. it maybe a third grade af- after third grade in the summer level. You know, I don't want to brag. And <laughs> and I realized that, oh, shit, this is a defective copy. Like it, it is supposed to be out of order by its very nature, but it's out of order in the wrong way. <laughs> it's like so, in order? <laughs> so I go back – yeah, I go back to this carny of, of, a, of, a, of a book vendor and he tells me over and over and over, oh, no, no, but it's supposed to be like that. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. But it's like that the wrong way. I never got my money back from that. And that, that son of a bitch. And that's why I'm a lawyer because I thought <laughs> <laughs> I need to stick up for myself. Never in the again. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, so I remember so Cavalier and Clay basically, you know, there there's the there's the parallel stories with the comic book and the interesting like superhero stuff and then there's these two dudes living in New York or wherever they These were. guys essentially created Superman in yeah. this fictional right. world, right? So at the very beginning you're like, "Whoa, the the superhero part's the most interesting." And then there's a part around like page 150 or so where you want to get back to the real story. And you realize, oh, you know, at the heart of every good story, it's just drama and just personal interactions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the story gets so good that you don't really care about this outlandish superhero story. And this was like it here. I mean, I really kind of thought like, like we have this crazy. I mean, and this was. I mean, look, it's not a normal story. It's not like these like like Cavalier and Clay, where there's just these two guys living in New York writing papers together or writing uh, uh, comic books together because this guy's stabbing a shark and then using it as a raft. I mean, that doesn't happen every day, but. It was interesting that I kind of was more curious about him than I was about the rest of the story because it was this one man's journey and he's like – he's about to die. He's on the edge of death and it was really cool to follow him. Yeah, he's fucking surviving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. It, it, really quickly. Cool. I mean I know you're an art guy. Sorry. Did you no, notice no. like the whole like – what would that be called? Like a, like a dot matrix kind of effect he does with the comic scenes? It's kind of a, a, a light halftone pattern thing that's going on which is supposed to kind of mimic um, older comics that – yeah. Had it's a, sweet. It's Old super style sweet. Printer. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. So Ozymandias, when he beats this dude, he reaches in that guy's throat to try and stop him from swallowing a cyanide tablet. Now, did you you just took this at face value? I'm guessing. Absolutely. Like I usually do with everything. There's there's nothing that made you think he possibly put a cyanide tablet in this guy's mouth. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to lie and say I thought of that. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, mean, I took him at his word. See, I don't actually remember whether or not that's how it goes. But part of me thinks that uh, it's extremely possible that Vate hired this guy to put an, a hit on him and then fought this dude and put a cyanide tablet and killed him so he couldn't say anything. Because wow. this will lend to his cover from... Rorschach that, hey, I'm I'm also being accosted. I'm also a, a ten- potentially a victim in whatever this big nefarious and plot is. And if he had his assistant or secretary write the note in cursive, a woman's handwriting, as I thought, <gasps> the circle is closed. Dun, dun, dun. Interesting. No, yeah. he, you know, it's funny because I'm not really that interested in this guy because he kind of comes in and out. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I think Dr. Manhattan and Rorschach are the people we're drawn to. Yeah, he's, he's kind of out into there. the background. He's literally, he's literally retired, right? right. And so who cares about a businessman that's marketing toys and license, doing licensing agreements 
Whereas, yeah, you're right. That, that's pretty wild that he's going to become a more central figure. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of uh, the other big point. I, I feel like we still have one unresolved point, which is – are Dan and Lori going to hook up? Are Dan and Lori going to hook up? Come on. They going to do it. He's a good dude. Yeah, she's a bad girl. Is she? Yeah, she got with a blue dude. And in then the- that blue dude's blue dude doppelganger and like three more blue dudes. Yeah, she's been with too many blue dudes for him. Yeah. You know? He can't compete with that. Oh, God. All right, let's keep going. It's making me sad. <laughs> uh, okay, so Rorschach gets set up. And how he falls into this situation and um, comes across Moloch with a head and a bullet in his head. Did you think that Moloch shot himself in the head and committed suicide, or did you think that he was killed and this is a setup? I mean, I guess you obviously thought it was a setup because you thought someone else wrote the note. For sure. Yeah. But the gun is placed there, so. I felt like when I first read this, for some reason, I thought Moloch as like a, a last ditch effort when I'm going to at least set up Rorschach and he's going to have to take the fall before I uh, when I die. I, I I guess I wasn't necessarily thinking of like a bigger, a larger conspiracy afoot. I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I did not even get that deep. I just assumed it was a setup. It kind of creates more of a mystery for me. It makes so much more sense. It closes. It it just kind of finishes something that's just beginning in my head if he did commit suicide. Yeah. You know? And I think even Rorschach – I mean why would the police be there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Obviously, they um, they were ready for the tip. They got the tip in advance. But still, it could have been like um, when he's saying – what was he saying? Raw shark? Which is such a good nod to um, the Black Freighter where he's eating a raw shark. I mean, sometimes they're clever in like a little bit heavy-handed ways. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that's just like a a neat way to have that plot also sound like Rorschach. Again, inconsistent. I mean, I think last week you said you didn't like that. And now you're loving it. Uh, I like it. You love wordplay. I like wordplay used sparingly. I think when wordplay is every other panel, I'm like, all right. Cool your jets here, guys. It's a bit much. But that, yeah, I just, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. And I think, again, you know, when we're in that scene, it goes back to the red, blue, red, blue, red, blue. And you kind of settle into that and you realize, whoa, something's going, you know. And also there's so much action there. I mean, it, it was awesome. I mean, he's like lighting stuff on fire. He's throwing powder in people's eyes. I don't know what he's doing. The the red is now of the fire that he, he set on, in the house. And the blue is him hiding in the shadows of the house. And it makes for great tension, the the shift between the lighting patterns. And let's look at the, the penultimate page here, second to last. I don't, you know... One time somebody told me that penultimate was their favorite word. Really? And I and I just I, – I liked her a little bit less. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I just did the same thing. I thought I'm on a podcast with my buddy. You know, I want to show him that I can do this. Maybe he'll invite me back. I'm going to say penultimate rather than second to last. Why, why not say second to last? Why do we say penultimate? I like penultimate, especially like when I'm talking about television. I always say oh, like really? the penultimate episode because penultimates 
are usually better than the finales, I think. Because it's been resolved and then it's just like the after. Yeah, because yeah, they have a lot of like, okay, we have to kind of lead into next season or resolve everything for the whole series. But the penultimate one is usually bug nuts fucking bonkers. Wow. Yeah, like like a, watch a Breaking Bad penultimate and those are going to be crazy. Watch Lost's penultimate episodes. Yeah. So in, in the penultimate issue then, since we're allowed to use that word, <laughs> we see at the bottom right, he, he says rural. Rawr. He jumps out. Rawr. And I think of Walt Whitman and he says something like, you know, your barbaric yelp. He's talking about America. We, we Americans need to just, you know, do what we do and just don't feel beholden to Europe and anything else. We can create art the way we want to. And it was beautiful. And I thought that's a barbaric yelp, you know, or yelp or yelp or whatever. Rawr. It is. It's, a, it's pretty good. He has a badass way of lighting people on fire. Throwing, uh, I don't know what it is, like anthrax, or it's probably like baking soda. He's in a house. Where did he get this powder? It's probably powder a bunch of uh, like uh, ground up sugar cubes that yeah. he got from Dan's house. Yeah, but they're <laughs> yeah, but they're white. Remember, the sugar cubes are green for some weird reason in the printer. Uh, yeah. So he's, yeah, but yeah, you're right. He's he's throwing sugar around. He's lighting shit on fire. It reminded decides, me of that movie Three Ninjas with the little kids. God, that was good. Throwing uh, the powder bombs. Have in you their wa- eyes. have you watched Ninjago? I have. Oh. That's good. It's pretty good. We should do a review of that. I mean, you know, maybe an ancillary podcast. <laughs> Next episode, we're yeah. just talking Ninjago. We just did Ninjago. We're off the rails here, folks. <laughs> it's not April Fool's Day. We were actually talking about Ninjago. No, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, for me, I, I hope it's I hope it's a conspiracy or I hope, you know, he's being set up because that's going to lead to issue six. And now I'm actually, you know, I think the, fir- the first one I did with you last week, I was like, okay, cool. I like this because it's going over the history. But this this issue, I really think, whoa, now I actually want to know what happens. And I don't care about Dr. Manhattan. I don't actually care about superhero bullshit. I just want to see what happens with these people because that's interesting enough. And I like to be in that spot because then I actually care about characters. And he's finally done that for me. See, that that goes back to DJ Wheel's question to us about, you know, I'm not big into the superhero genre per se. And I like to that, I would say this comic – is not necessarily trying to glorify superheroes. This is not a Marvel movie. This is not even a DC movie. This is a it's it's a mystery. It's a a gritty uh, crime drama, and it's um, like kind of poetic in a way. And like it's combining all of these. Yeah, it's a it's a fun genre mystery and that's what lost was that's what leftovers is this is i think this is more leftovers than lost do do you think so uh in so much as it's a little bit takes more investment adult takes more investment it's more adult it's not just this shot like this this cool novelty and it's not shot like oh cool we're gonna see a tiger like a polar bear or dinosaur or a smoke monster Right. It's more like, oh, we got to sit here and we might read. We might, you know, I mean, now, oh my God, heaven forbid, 2019, we're going to be bored for two seconds without looking at our cell phones. Exactly. You know, you might be bored for a few seconds here wondering what's going on. And then on reread, you're like, oh, cool. I actually noticed the panels now. I noticed the lighting. This is, this is actually art. See, that's, that's what I'm saying about like this reread for me. I'm like, oh, I'm getting some crazy things out of this just because I know where a lot of these story beats are supposed to be going. It's so fascinating to me. Like, how mapped out – when you map out a whole story and that allows you to kind of go back and be like, I'm going to boost up this whole angle over here in this because I know my end game now. Absolutely. And you know, I think we might 
Yeah, but but when you say in game, I mean I think that's where we are. Where we don't actually know the end game, so it's kind of sweet now, and we're we're invested because you're right. We do want to stick around, even though we know it's going to be another seven issues. Which right, who right. knows whether you know which of the issues are going to be bad, which are going to be good. But we're actually going somewhere now, which is fun. And I also like just hearing you say reread because it, I just think of Rihanna. <laughs> reread, that's yeah. what I meant. So anyway, uh, okay, I want to end on this. This is the end quote from this chapter. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Which is from William Blake. And I leave you with that. Clay, do you have any thoughts on that? Unfortunately, I don't. I wish I could give you some. I actually don't know the poetry of William Blake. Yeah. Uh, uh, if, I, any, if anyone wants to read Geek Love, we're doing that in book club in about three to four weeks. Which well, ha, Have you started that? I have not started Geek yeah, Love. I'm not surprised. I thought it was about nerds and it's about carnies. It's about carny freaks. So yeah. that's a little bit different. No, but did you do any research on William Blake actually? I did not. Okay. I, I think that the fearful symmetry – is a great parallel for what's going on here. I think it's it's maybe a comment on the the beauty and the menace of a tiger. Tigers are gorgeous. They're also deadly. Oh, and and as you realize how gorgeous they are, mm-hmm. it's like clever girl Velociraptor. They're jumping out of the forest, coming at you. Yeah, yeah. And so your last second is, oh wow, that's gorgeous, and then you're sliced open. Yeah. Which we might get here. You take in the power that you can respect in what's going on with them, but at the same time, it's your impending doom. (laughs) Right. 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 And uh, that's that, I guess, in that way, this reflects what's going on in this issue. Um, How how do you rank this among the issues of the comic so far you've read? I really love the last one, but it's kind of a standalone, so it's tough to rank it with the others. I think this was the best one for sure because, like I said, now I finally care about the characters. Now I finally see what Lindelof might want to do here, which now I know that it's not – he's not just redoing this. He's actually doing something 30, 40 years later. But, uh, yeah, I think this was by far the best one for me. What did you think? Yeah, I thought this one was pretty fantastic. It's it's a great payoff to – what they've already established with these characters in this world. And it leaves us on the biggest cliffhanger with Rorschach, his face being revealed. And now we don't know what his fate is. And he was the, the driving force, the, the main protagonist who had any sort of initiative. I mean, we look at um, Dr. Manhattan, he's pieced off to Mars. We look at Night Owl and Laurie and they're just complacent in their, their domestic lifestyle right now in a way and so like where does the story go if Rorschach the one person pushing forward a narrative is off the table he's off the chessboard for the love of God I hope he goes to a low security prison like Jeffrey Epstein and just fixes the HVAC and plays tennis and lifts weights and gets a nice tan <laughs> that's all he's getting he's getting a, shaving down a lot of time in his his mile swim thank God for that guy he's doing great yeah Uh, All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up here. I wanted to say if you guys are liking this show, want to help us support us, you can go to patreon.com slash who pods a watchman. There you can make a per episode pledge, give us a buck or two per episode that we put out. You only get charged if we put out an episode and we appreciate all the support. You guys can also help us out by just following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you kind of find us and share us with your friends and family. Share us with family. And, hey, more questions. I love those. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely uh, solicit for more questions for the next time we're uh, back here in studio. 
reviewing chapter six, I believe. And we're gonna what? we're gonna go in order. We're gonna be boring and just go in order. We're, we're going to chapter thirteen. It's my fanfic yeah. I've written. The plot along. <laughs> I hope you're okay with this. It's mainly just a lot of sex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right, guys, that's a weird way to end this episode, but we're going to go for it. Uh, Thank you guys again for tuning in, and we'll be back next time. Have a good night. night.